And um, I was asked if I could th go throw the ladder. And I look at the, the lieutenant who told me to throw the ladder, and I, I just made a funny face and go, what? He goes, oh, you're new, aren't you? <laughs> so he says, I'm going to teach you how to butt a ladder, and you just stand here and butt this ladder. So for the whole fire, pretty much, I stood there butting the ladder, holding on to it. And um, in the meantime, this stoned hippie goes out, and he's sitting in his front yard with an electric guitar with no amp, playing the door's fire on <laughs> his electric guitar. Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And today I'm recording this on November 27th, 2021. And on this date, back in 1860, a San Francisco, California firefighter died at the Lysacum Theater Fire on Washington and Montgomery Streets. Also in 1874, on this date, a Baltimore County firefighter died at a fire at the Marburg Brothers Tobacco Warehouse in Baltimore. In 1678, a fire destroyed large parts of Boston's North End. And uh, in Waukegan, Illinois, a corn, pro corn production plant explosion killed four and injured 25 others. And also on this date in 1095, Pope Urban II ordered the first Holy Crusade. And I share all of this trivia and some history because uh, my guest today is... Uh, kind of responsible for me knowing this and uh, uh today i'm gonna i call him an amateur historian but he's also got a long and distinguished fire service career with several different departments across a number of different states both as a volunteer and a paid firefighter and he sports one of the strongest mustache games i believe i've ever seen in the fire service uh, please welcome most recently from pasco county florida carl thompson carl thanks for uh, sitting down with me wow thank you so, so yeah, uh, and I mentioned that, and we'll talk more about the history thing, but uh, when I first got this new job, uh, we met, I don't know, three or four years ago, and you said, hey, I've got this uh, daily history email that goes out. Would you be interested in it? And uh, kind of get that every day. And I'll, I'll be honest, I don't look at every one of them uh, because of email overload someday, but a lot of days I'll get in and at least look at the highlights and see some interesting stuff. And uh, uh, kind of quite the list of histor historical events you post every day to uh, to. Yeah to followers so it was kind of funny because the way that came about is i was at a conference and um we were talking about and i believe it was the coconut grove fire which by the way the anniversary is tomorrow the 28th of november yeah. 28th of november and um the person i was talking to had no idea about that fire and i said you know you're you're not only in the fire service you're a fire inspector you don't know about this fire and, and it just overwhelmed me and i this is probably 15 ish years ago so i started developing a history and and running with it and going through and researching different areas and i know i'm missing a lot of fires because you know you obviously there's multi-fatality fires all over the place all the time but i try and catch them as i can and if they're up on um in the news or whatever i try and try and add them to the list and the hardest part about history is it never stops; it just keeps growing. Just getting created. And unfortunately, for the fire service, we don't we don't have a loss of those uh, 
those types of events. And even just in the few years that I've been following you, there's events that have happened in that four years that, you know, a year later wind up being the top right. top event on your, uh, your headline. So uh, well, let's get back to that. But uh, let's talk about you first and uh, your fire service career. Uh, like I said, you most recently, <laughs> we're down in Pasco County, and thanks to the guys here at Station 13 for letting us sit in their, their office and uh, borrow some space for, a, for an hour here or so. But how did, uh, how did you get started in the fire service? I would know it wasn't in Florida. No, I actually started in Montgomery County, Maryland. And um, it's kind of an interesting story. My friend's older brother did not get along with his parents any better than I got along with my parents. Now, I got a, for the record, I love my parents. I really and truly do. But when you're 16, you think you know everything. And... Um, he said, well, you know, you ought to join the volunteer fire department. And I said, well, what would that do for me? He says, if nothing else, you can move into the fire station. And I said, no, no, really? really? He said, yeah. So um, I turned 16 at the end of October, and I went down and made application. Had to go through two meetings, but they didn't have the December meeting because of Christmas. And so on February 19th, 1972... I was sworn in as a volunteer firefighter, and I think I moved into the fire station the following weekend, and pretty much have been in the fire station ever since, um, because I didn't want my mother and father telling me what to do. So, so you moved into a place where you had lieutenants and captains telling you <laughs> yeah, what to do. Yeah, but they, they were cool. <laughs> oh, I got you. So as a 16-year-old getting into the to a volunteer company, then what could you do? I mean, today... today in, you know, 16-year-olds are kind of limited as to what they could and can and can't do. What yeah, do unfortunately, then? back in 72, they should have been, but we weren't. Um, I mean, I, I really hate to say um, the things I did and with the absence of training that I had, it terrifies me now to look back and go, thank God there was a guardian angel sitting on my shoulder because um, I remember my very, very first fire was out at the Potomac Polo Club Um at kind of near Seneca, Maryland, if you're familiar with the area. And the caretaker's shack was on fire. And um, it was an old balloon frame house, two-story, with a, with a basement, um, no, no floor, just a, just a basement with walls. And um, I was asked if I could th go throw the ladder. And I look at the, the lieutenant who told me to throw the ladder, and I, I just made a funny face and go, what he goes oh you're new aren't you <laughs> oh throw it. How, how am i going to throw that thing it's heavy and um so he says i'm going to teach you how to butt a ladder and you just stand here and butt this ladder so for the whole fire pretty much i stood there butting the ladder holding on to it and um in the meantime this stoned hippie goes out and he's sitting in his front yard with an electric guitar with no amp playing the Doors Fire on his electric <laughs> guitar. And that was my first fire, and that occurred probably the week, so the weekend after February um, February 19th. So, I mean, we could do the math yeah. and figure out what weekend that was. Early 72. Early 72. With a, with a hippie with no amplifier playing <laughs> Doors. Oh. There's, so, probably, there's probably a great movie scene coming out of that somewhere along the lines. <laughs> So, uh, did you? How long did you spend in that company? And uh, I spent. Um, well, I stayed with them all the way through my service, and when I went to the Coast Guard in '74 and on active duty from '74 to '78, but was um, 
stationed in Annapolis, Maryland, so I was never more than a few miles from. So you could stay so active I, with the yeah, company. Yeah, stayed active with them the whole time. Then I left there, went to Virginia for a very short time. I'm in the Dumfries Triangle area, and then moved to Texas and joined the volunteer department there, and then moved to Florida in 79 and went to work here in Pasco County um, in the CETA program, which was a um, training program for for um, people who were down on their luck, I guess. And um, when the CETA program ended under Reagan, um, I was able to get a position in Brevard County and worked there for 26 years, left Brevard County and went to Tennessee for two years as a state training director. So backing up to the CETA program, it was kind of a federally funded position. Federally once, funded. The, once the funding drew, dried up, they were like, Good luck. Thanks for being with us. And exactly. Often. And that was the, abu- I mean, that, that was the problem with the program is it wasn't like the safer grant where we'll hire them, we'll train them, but now you got to pay for them. Yeah, after there, was, there was no commitment after there was the no funding. Commitment after. Gotcha. So then from, from Pasco to Brevard, uh, t- tell us a little bit about Brevard. I mean, that's kind of a. Brevard is an interesting place. Um, you know, it, it's, it is the space center. Um, so you've got, you know, Cocoa I, I used to say I, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I protected the homes they lived in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, it was it was a um, semi-rural suburban county. Um, it was separated by the swamp from Orlando, so it wasn't really part. Of, it's part of the Orlando Metroplex, technically, but because of the St. John Swamp, it's really separate alligators so, were separating yeah. everybody from one another yeah so from there you, you said that's you mean that's a career there how many years 26 in years there and i went from from firefighter um to bat on the suppression side and retired out as a deputy fire marshal what you know you um what what you know i mean nowadays you're i'm kind of know you from the fire prevention code enforcement side of the shop that was obviously a lot of operational time you spent there. What what got you to transition from the, I joke with my colleagues, the, the reactive side of the fire service to the more proactive and prevention side of the shop? Well, you know, it's, it's funny you bring that up. In Montgomery County, um, in 74, I started my associate's degree at Montgomery, well, Montgomery College and also got it. Same time I got out of the Coast Guard, I finished it. Um, but I was very, very fortunate in that um, during that period, I had some of the greatest thinkers in the fire service, <coughs> um, and and two in particular come to mind. The media, although I shouldn't just say two. I mean, there was, um, but Frank Brannigan did building construction, and Rob James C. Robbie Robertson did fire prevention. And somehow, Robbie gave me a passion for fire prevention that I've always felt that that that's the way we're going to fix the future, you know, fix the fire problem. And um, I like to think back, you know, if you look at the fire service, in 1947, the Truman Fire Prevention Conference, and then 66, the Wing Spread Committee, and then 74, the America burning. But those were the Renaissance documents that sort of perpetuated the fire service from being a very local, um, autonomous vocation into more of a profession. 
I think we still have a long way to go, but I mean, you know, certainly we have many challenges ahead of us in the fire service right now and that we're going to have to seek engineered solutions for, and that's going to come through traditional prevention. So you mentioned a couple of those big names, Brannigan, obviously on, on the op side, wrote the Bible about building construction and how, how, how the built environment affects how we operate on the fire ground. Uh, Robbie Robertson's not a real well-known name outside of the prevention world. I mean, I knew him because he was well-connected in Virginia. I, I didn't know him, but I knew of the name. Um, any, any, anything about them that kind of made them the, the mentors and leaders you looked up to coming up through your career? You know, I don't really know necessarily what it was that made me look to them other than I just felt their greatness. I mean, they were two entirely different. I mean, you know, I love Robbie to death. But he was extremely monotone and not a dynamic speaker. <laughs> and, of course, Frank Brannigan, who you thought was, was preaching every morning hell and fire and, and everything else. Um, but, but they were trying to change the fire service. And, and you know, I, I guess maybe that's what really attracted me to them is they saw problems and they were, were identifying them and talking about them and, trying to change why we were injuring, hurting, um, killing as many firefighters as we were and just accepting it. What do you think were some of the things that, that they were preaching back in the day that's really kind of gained some traction and uh, has made a positive impact in the decades since they were preaching, the, preaching that song, as it were? Well, I think that most every state now has, has some type of recruit training, which is pretty much – universal for the state so, so no more 16 year olds here's where you ride let's go yeah, exactly. none of that stuff happening okay that, that's one of the big ones the second is we have fire officer programs now and that we're actually most departments are now requiring fire officers to have a certain degree of or certain level of training and certain number of courses including building construction um you know, and, and, and I think that's phenomenal because, you know, it, in Florida right now, you, do, you have to be certified to be a firefighter, but you actually don't have to have a special certification to be a fire officer. So the guy who's going to lead you in and get you killed has only got to have the same fire certification that the rookie on the tail or on the, in the, the jump seat well, has. The old tailboard days. So, yeah, I mean, that, you mentioned that uh, that's a state requirement that the firefighter be certified is it is there i'm going to make an assumption here that a lot of the more progressive departments that have officers in the front seat they have minimum internal qualifications is that a fair statement that's a very fair statement as a matter of fact um unlike the united states fire service florida is about 75 percent or, or probably closer to 85 percent fully paid or paid with a couple of volunteers um, compared to the rest of the country, which we see 75%. But Florida is, has has um, very high percentage of career-paid firefighters. And most of the union contracts, whether it was the union or management, negotiated, but they have to achieve their fire officer certification in order to promote so for all intensive purposes, that requirement's there. It's just not a it's not requirement, a state requirement from the state, right. state levels. Gotcha. So uh, you mentioned you went 
to Brevard and then went, then went to Tennessee? Tennessee for two years. So what did you do in Tennessee? I was a state training director at the Fire and Codes Academy in beautiful Bell Buckle, Tennessee, or Unionville, Tennessee. I will be there next week, so I'm going to be looking for some tips here. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful area. Loved it. Um, but I have two sons. And one son called me on one night and told, or called my wife and said that his wife um, was pregnant and that that um, she, that she was we were going to be grandparents. And two days later, the other son called and said um, his wife, his new wife at that time, was pregnant and we were going to be grandparents. My wife turned to me and said, I don't know about you, but... I'm taking half your pension and all your possessions and I'm moving back to Florida to be with the grandkids. So I left Tennessee and came back to, to Florida and went to work with the Florida Division of State Fire Marshal teaching at the Florida Fire College. All right. So that's uh, got you from Tennessee to Florida. So doing pretty much the same thing you were doing in Tennessee, but just brought right. it to, to the Sunshine State. And then I switched over to prevention from there and actually was the chief engineer for um, the Division of State Fire Marshal. Um, in the fire prevention area. So what did you do as an engineer there? Were you doing well, more we plans were mainly plan review and, and building construction, but also heavily involved in code research and um, code opinions, official code opinions for the state fire marshal. Gotcha. And um, you also wound up in Pasco County. Did you leave the then, state then? Then I the left Pasco? the state and took a job in Pasco County um, again, my sister had moved from Washington down to Pasco County to be closer to my mother, and I didn't want to have the delay if my mother should pass away and she gets to tag all the good stuff and get it out of the house. <laughs> <No, just, laughs> be there to watch out for stuff. Yeah, I understand. So, um, so now I moved to Pasco, had a great opportunity, got a job, spent five years here in Pasco, and just retired in March as the fire from, as the fire marshal for Pasco. Right. Well, what, tell me a little bit about uh, Pasco County, because this is a little bit of a different environment than Brevard, I'm sure. Pasco is North Tampa, and um, it really is a 50-50 county. 50% of the county is extremely rural, and I mean real rural. And then 50% is suburban Tampa, and um, very populated. Bed, bedroom community of the downtown Bedroom community. Tampa, yeah. we, we have garden apartments growing faster than than um, swamp weeds <laughs> and it's saying something <laughs> um so you let's let's call it you know maryland uh two different departments in florida state fire marshal's office in florida and and tennessee and you worked in texas too for a while uh, this was a small volunteer, volunteer. Fire department. what well, if you looked at all those across the board and um what what type you know it's I, i'm interested in organizational cultures too and and how those different departments of those agencies are the same or different. What, what are some common themes between all of those, whether it's Florida to Tennessee, Maryland? You know, that, that's an interesting thing. I don't want to get ruin all your viewers and have them turn you off because, um, but, you know, I find the fire service very much the same. You know, I, I, I've joked and said there's probably only 10 personalities in the fire service. And although the guy looks different, I can walk into any fire station and say, oh, well, there's Robbie. <laughs> you know, and, or, and I can read any rule book and go, this rule is because somebody <laughs> because did Robbie. something. <laughs> you know, because this, yeah. Um, and and it's, it's amazing how similar and, and how the same we are. 
um, and and how much, um, you know, unfortunately, firefighting is always going to be a blue-collar job. You know, I, I liken it onto rapid deployment plumbing, um, that we've got to put a pipe in service real quick and, um, and get water through it. Yeah. But the, the reality is it's a blue-collar job. Then we have all of the other um, stuff we're picking up. And EMS, for example, is, is a very regimented um, culture that, um, in my opinion, erodes way more time. Um, not, not that it should, but it's taken a great deal of focus away from firefighting. And, you know, unfortunately, I find firefighters all the time who say, I'm just a firefighter. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being just a firefighter. I I think that that's very important that we remember firefighting is part of our basic mission. Right. I always always joked with some of the people back in my old department. They said we were a fire-based EMS organization. I'm like, you know, are we? We do 80% EMS. Are we really an EMS-based department that does a little fire on the side so yeah i mean unfortunately and that's what's happened and, and it's eroded all of our time if you if you actually look at at the training you know are we getting the training we need and and you know i, I alluded to earlier we have some really big hurdles in front of us whether we know they're there or not energy storage systems with electric cars um everybody has a lithium-ion battery strapped on their hip right now um our portable radios have a lithium-ion battery in them that says do not take in an environment over 400 degrees that might happen occasionally yeah um then we have um you know and, and how are we going to deal with the car fires either in a parking structure and we've we've exempted parking structures historically from being sprinkled if they're 50% open. Now I put an electric car in there, and with, the electric car and, and the plastic. Yeah. Well, some, the electric car, the, the lithium-ion battery will burn for f- up to four hours and require 40,000 gallons of water. Um, I don't know many fire departments that can move 40,000 gallons of water Not- or on the interstate or anywhere. Um, you know, we, we have people who are putting photovoltaic systems on their house and they're putting the batteries in their garage. So now a garage fire turns into an energy storage system, uh, fire. energy storage system fire. Um, and you know, and I don't know that the word on, on that is actually filtering down to the, you know, the proverbial boots on the street. Uh, you know, the firefighters understand this problem. Um, do they understand photovoltaic and what you need to do? Um, well, do you think that, you know, after what here in a couple of months is going to be 50 years in the fire service. And so February is your 50th anniversary. Um, is, do you think that energy storage systems and the, all of the risks that provide are the next generation of problems? I mean, I, I equate this to when I first came in, in the fire service, we were worried about, um, health and fitness from a cardiovascular standpoint and lightweight construction was just starting to become a thing that we were worried about. And we got a kind of a grasp on them and then it became cancer presumptions and more of the lightweight construction in the commercial setting that became the kind of the focus or the thing on the horizon that, that we needed to be worried about is this, 
this technology piece, do you think that's the, the next thing on, that's well, I, on I the think horizon? Technology in general is the next. I mean, you know, in addition to the energy storage, we have the um, non-organo-halogenated or organohalogen refrigerant gases replacement. Is that the A2L low? The, the flammable. Low the flammable global warming potential gases, yeah. Yeah, propane refrigerators. Yeah, yeah, pro, yeah put it in, yeah. Pro, put, don't, don't fill it up with Freon. Let's fill it up with propane, essentially. And that's not going to be any bigger, you know, that's not going to create a problem because when it blows up, you know, that. that it's, the problem's that, gone. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you know, are we, are we looking out for that? Are we, are we advising the younger firefighters, um, or when I say the younger, are we advising our company officers? Are we telling them this is coming? Um, you know, sprinkler technology um, is moving so quickly right now that, um, you know, I sometimes think NFPA 13E is an albatross that, um, you know, when you have a early suppression fast response sprinkler system, that's using a K factor of 25 on the head and it's flowing up to 300 gallons of water per head and tests are showing that you're having eight to 10 heads active on a fire. Um, are we prepared to move that kind of water with a standard pumper or are we better off letting the engineer who designed the system adjust for the water? Tell um, us how to, how, to, how to pump it, yeah. Yeah. Um, from there, smoke management. How many firefighters are trained in how to respond to a building that has smoke management? Um, you know, I mean, our, pretty much most of us deal with um, with residential fires, so we're very we're very good. Eighty percent of our fires are residential, so we're very good. Well, one of the standard tactics at residential is you secure the utilities. So we traditionally cut off all the electricity as we make our 360 around the building. Well, if you cut off the electricity to the smoke management system, you've now defeated this million-dollar life, sy system, life yeah. safety system. Um, you know, another area I don't think we're well prepared for, but we need to start looking towards, um, is the percentage of differently abled people in the building, we've done phenomenal, or the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, has done phenomenal work to get people into the building. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't put the same emphasis on being able to get the people out of the building. Now we have people in motorized wheelchairs, 16, 17 stories in the air, even in a, let's go back to my, the, the four-story garden apartment four stories in the garden apartment, you're not going to run up, grab hold of that electric wheelchair with somebody in it and carry it down the stairs. You know, I, I think it's time that we start putting stair chairs um, on fire apparatus just so we have a methodology. Hold on, hold on, man. Uh, it, that's a piece of EMS equipment. I, I get it. I get it. But in this <laughs> case, it's rescue. I know. Okay, okay. Right, we'll go there. I'll paint it red. I got you. All right. There we go. Yeah, we're okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's time we actually start looking at that because, you know, some of the statistics I found shocking is that up to 7% of a building's population may have mobility impairment. So in a four-story, 100-unit, age-restricted apartment building. Oh, good Lord, almost everybody in there is going right. to have a mobility. I mean, if you're in an age-restricted, yep. but even in your your um, 
suburban Richmond garden apartment, yep. you know, seven seven out of every 100 people may not be able to navigate a set of stairs. So how are they going to get off that? How are we going to get them down? And what are our resources to get them down? Yeah, I, I, I hearken back to a, to a fire that happened just inside the city of Richmond. Uh, Bill Crump and I, Bill Crump had just come under the fire marshal's office and I was giving him a tour of the district he was getting ready to assume from me at the time. And the city ran a four-story age-restricted apartment complex with the roof on fire and that was the the critical factor that was the issue when we we got there in a car as we was getting the people who could not walk the stairs off of the fourth floor out of the building so certainly a, a worry and a concern you know and that's going to bring in should should we now be looking at making elevators last longer Instead of going into phase one recall with the fire alarm, maybe we should leave them run till there's actually smoke detected in the elevator lobby. Would you harden them as well a little bit? Maybe. Oh, certainly. I mean, you know, let's let's put shaft pressurization in, or hoistway pressurization. But when we do that, then we can't have the fire department defeat it by killing the power. Right. The I mean, you know, so so I, I mean, I I do envision the biggest issue, in my opinion, facing the fire service, is going to be education and real education for the future fire service and, and keeping it current you know all too often we rely on the same books i mean not, not that there's anything wrong with with those books right. i'm the guy who's preaching history all the time right. but at the same time you know we need to have current issues books um interesting staying abreast of what's going on out there in the real world i guess so Let's uh, take a look backwards again a little bit. And in your uh, nearly 50 years, any any responses or incidents that really stick out in your mind that you responded to or or had to deal with as a code official after the fact that uh, kind of stand out as a some lessons learned or some success stories that the departments you were involved with? Were, uh... There are probably several, but fortunately, or whatever, to prevent my post-traumatic stress, I forget an incident as fast as I deal with it and, and, and move it along and, and don't really sit there and focus on them. I mean, I've had my share of, of tragedies and bad incidents, and I've had seen things gone, gone wrong, and I've seen a lot of things go right, um, and I've always tried to learn from them. But I really, you know, I mean, I think what we see, um, we just need to learn from and constantly use those those venues, whether it be Facebook or whatever, for um, to to read about incidents. You know, like I say, um, the surprise uh, Arizona fire was enlightening. I didn't need to go to it, but I certainly got a lot from it. For those that don't know what that is, it was a energy storage system fire. It was a kind of a container, called it an inter- intermodal container for kind of a fairly accurate size and configuration uh, description. And one of those lithium-ion batteries went into thermal runaway and uh, hurt several people, police officer, a couple of firefighters included. So uh, I'd suggest if you're still in the business, look that one up if you haven't heard about it already. Gives you kind of a bunch of lessons learned there. Um Let's go back to your history lessons for for a for a minute, and um, you mentioned how that got started and and how it's evolved over time. It, you know, just a you know, I, I got on it as an email list, and it's not just an email list, is it anymore? Is how does how do people see that, or how many people well, are actually seeing that? So I, I try and send it out. I do have an email list of people who who request to get on it, and I'll add their name onto it if you know for an individual copy. 
I am. Um, I'm also um, Billy G. Billy Goldfeder um, is on the list, and he approached me, and I, I actually put the history, the fire history only. Don't so much put the Holy Crusades up there, but <laughs> but put the um, fire history up um, on CloseCalls.com um, under firefighter history. That's that's my my history post. Yep. So firefighterclosecalls.com. Yes, and you can go there and see it under the history tab. History tab, and then um, it's circulated through the Florida Fire Marshals Association. Yep. So, and that's where we connected. And um, let's talk a little bit about that. You're uh, you're what they call a fellow with the Florida Fire Marshals and Inspectors Association. Tell uh, tell me about what that is and what it means. You know, it, it's very hard for me to talk about it because I I barely feel deserving, but it is recognition amongst the notable people in fire prevention in the state of Florida who who recommend an award that or bestow that honor we just know we just welcomed um julius hallis to the rank as a fellow um he's the division director for the state farm marshal he's number 19 um olin green and and robbie robertson and um several people are on that list who are just phenomenal people and we're lead are in our leaders in in fire prevention and when i was when i became a fellow um, it was probably one of the greatest moments in my life because, you know, you're, you're actually being recognized by the people who really know the job. I mean, as compared to the of the year awards and there's nothing wrong with the of the year mm-hmm. awards, but usually, you, you know, frequently they're, um, they're not really, they're of the year. It's not, you know, is, is it, a, is it a fair statement that, you know, the of the year awards are kind of the, the state recognition of firefighter, fire inspector, fire chief, and all the other positions in there of, of the year. It's recognizing that person's last year or so's contribution and work. This, this fellow designation that, um, that you have and those others have, it's more of a body, a career body of work, yes, if you will. Lifetime, it's, lifetime achievement yeah. award, if you will. I, I'd, I'd ask somebody, is this kind of like a life membership in FFMA? And they go, oh, no, it's way bigger than that because it's not, not necessarily, it's not something that automatically happens. It's something that your, your, your fellow peers, if that makes sense, yes. your, your peer fellows in FFMA actually vote you in. It's a pretty exclusive club that uh, certainly uh, deserving of the recognition of the work you put in in the career and how you contributed to fire prevention and the fire service in Florida and, and beyond. I think a lot of those names you mentioned aren't, just Florida people. No. They've gone well outside of the bounds of Florida and contributed. Uh, last question I'll ask you, and uh, then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about or share, is um, you know, after 50 years in the fire service, you've certainly got a, uh, some staying power and were able to, to stay involved in the business. Um, what's next for you? I mean, I know, I know you're not just retiring and going away and we, we've had that conversation you were teaching at a conference i was at just a couple of weeks ago still uh, what's what's on the horizon for you i think i'm going to go probably primarily doing teaching and 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 you know if i can get on the right syndicate and talk um <laughs> but but i i, I want to continue you know i feel i have a lot to offer back to the fire service and that um if nothing else if i can get people in the fire service to go hmm Maybe that's not the best way. Maybe we need to rethink this. You know, just um, stimulate stimulate thinking amongst the fire service um, and, and promoting education. 
because I, I really think if for us to become a profession, um, we need to take the next step, and that next step is is real education. Is um, and yeah, I kind of leads into the the piece of advice you would give these uh, young firefighters. I'll call them young, even though some of them aren't quite so young anymore. Starting their fire service career, uh, what would you tell them to help them in that? process to to have a successful fire service career stay focused on 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 training and and recognize your limitations and try and 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 get seek out things to help you overcome your deficits i mean if you do not understand construction perhaps take a couple of construction classes um you know not just fire service construction but actual real building construction yeah, the, one of the biggest changes I've noticed in the fire service over the um, over the last fifty years is when I started in the fire service, everybody was in a tool trade. Whether you were a mechanic or um, a carpenter, plumber, um, you, you had a background and you knew how to use tools. And over the years, and, and for a lot of reasons, most of which are not necessarily the fault of the the new firefighter, because they haven't been, they're not allowed an opportunity to even walk on a construction site. But but they come to the job without an understanding of the difference in, in the tools and how to use them. They um, you know, they've never built anything with their hands, not even a Ford as a kid. Um, or, or they haven't driven anything bigger than a Hyundai, and now they're yes. Now they're at the helm of a fire truck, ladder truck. Yeah, and that's the other thing. The trucks have gotten monstrous. I mean, you know, again, if you look, I, I think I I think we've almost virtually doubled the size and weight of fire apparatus over the last fifty years. Yep, and it's not. Um, I guess it, the safety safety provisions that come into those are at a cost. <laughs> right. Bigger. You gotta need more water because we're dealing with more uh, a different fire load in the in the buildings we're going into. So you need more water, you need more pumps, uh, need more safety equipment. So uh, anything else you want to share? Uh, anything of your fifty year career you want to make sure people understand or can? Uh, well, I think it's time. You know, is is my fifty years is coming up right now. We're only thirty five ish years away from twenty fifty. Stop. And, well. <laughs> So a person who's coming on the job today is going to be leaving the job in 2050. And what does the fire service look like in 2050? What changes do we anticipate? Are we still going to be, you know, are, are we still going to be a, a vocation that you come in and you start in the jump seat and you have to work your way through every seat, dragging hose a certain length and throwing a certain number of ladders till you finally move into the chief's car? Or are we going to look in, you know, I mean, I, I, I've always compared the fire, looked at the fire service and I've looked at the military. And I remember having a conversation with Dr. O'Neill. How can the military take a kid right out of, college, right out of high school send him to one of the academies, West Point, Annapolis, or whatever, train him, educate him, put him on a fast track to move to general, and we in the fire service are insistent upon you starting 
you know, on the tailboard and, and literally working your way through every seat um, till, you, till you reach chief. And by the time you finally reach chief, you're at the end of your career, you're worn out, you're tired, and, um, you know, and, and you just want to maintain status quo. I've got four years to retirement. Don't touch it. <laughs> Don't upset this apple cart. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's, you know, kind of interesting perspective on the, the service academies. You know, those guys come out of there um, as officers, and now they are in those leadership positions, commanding troops and leading they're part of the organization when they've never really been a private or a corporal or never. Yeah. You know, anyway, that's, that's kind of an interesting perspective. Yeah. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I wonder why we need this traditional approach. Then I would also argue or suggest, I won't say argue, I would suggest um, as much as I love the fire, the par- fire service and the fire department, Fire prevention belongs in the fire service. I'm just not sure it belongs in the fire department. <laughs> so, and, and when I was going with this is, it, in my opinion, the fire marshals of any size jurisdiction in the year 2050 are probably going to need to be engineers. And if they're not engineers, they're certainly going to need to be engineering technologists. I mean, you know. To know the engineering to, practice. To know the engineering practices. You cannot deal with radio enhanced communication and, and understand mathematical formulas that are twice as long as, as, you know, and, and, and be able to put that together unless you have the background. I, I was really impressed at the conference we were, you were referring to. Miami is in the process of hiring three fire protection engineers. Um, and that's the first in the state of Florida. that's actually putting three fire protection engineers on the payroll to do new construction plan review um, documents. You know, certain jurisdictions, Vegas, um, Clark County have been doing it for years, but to see Miami coming around and, you know, and and I hope that will continue down the road. It's interesting that particularly with the complexity, like you said, the complexity of the systems that are going into these, it's not just, you know, sticks and steel and uh and wires anymore it's it's how are all these systems interacting and and what's the engineering forces associated it's that's a good thing that they're that proactive and they're out on that cutting edge you know we tried to do it uh, a couple of times we just couldn't we could not recruit because of the resources we had available well, that's to what them. i'm saying yeah. fire fire prevention belongs in the fire service just not in the fire department because how can you pay your fire marshal more than you pay your fire chief yeah. because he's an engineer yeah. uh, engineer makes some, <laughs> make some coin um, you know and, and so i'm going to have to be able to uh, to to recruit and attract that it's interesting. Not, not only not only from that perspective but uh it's the mindset um you know I, when i came into fire marshal's office uh, mike hatton was the fire marshal then and he he kind of had an interesting take on things he said putting the the fire marshal's office in the fire department is kind of like putting the peace corps in the marine corps yeah. because you've got this uh because you've got this this component of the organization that's that's focused on i want to go fight fire i want to go fight fire and the small segment of it's going that's a bad thing to have to go fight fire we want to keep that from happening in the first place so i'm just not sure which side is the marine corps and which side is the peace corps <laughs> well, well that, we can debate that one on another episode for sure yeah that'd be fun any other uh, parting comments, Carl? I appreciate no, you being here. I appreciate here. the opportunity, and um, 
Hopefully, I didn't kill your viewership. No, the good news is, is that it's a, it's a, it's audio only. I got, I've told everybody for years, I've got a face for radio. So, (laughs) when I was PIO, and so I appreciate you being here, and and thanks for your service, and thanks for the daily updates and the history lessons that come along. I've I've actually pulled a couple of nuggets out of that, and some of the, some of the work I've done on my day job, and (laughs) and use some of it. So, uh, and uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, If you got any comments or questions. Uh, reach out to me at uh, firehouselogbook at gmail.com or on Twitter at FDLogbook and Instagram is FDLogbookPodcast. And make sure you follow the webpage on uh, Facebook as well. So I post, uh, post pictures and you'll stay abreast of uh, when those episodes come up. And make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or all of those platforms. We do appreciate it. And Carl, uh, What's that website again? They want to get to get a hold of your daily update. Um, it's firefighterquestcalls.com. Billy Goldfeder's um, the se- where the secrets list the is. Secret list. Go check it out uh, for sure. And uh, firefighter history. It's on the on the side column there. You will you will have more uh, trivia in your memory banks for those <laughs> trivia contests going forward. Carl, thanks a lot. You're welcome.